Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast. The second best podcast in Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know that, Pat. We could be the third or fourth (laughs) best podcast, you know. Um, Yeah. Okay. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we'll be joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton, to discuss some of the recent developments in the UK election campaign, which still, I'm afraid, has four weeks to run. But first, uh, Pat Leahy is here, as he often is on a Friday. Hi, Pat. Good afternoon, Hugh. You are most welcome. And just to say that Pat and I will be in the Workman's Club in Dublin next week for a live podcast alongside the lovely people from the What Am Politics podcast. It is all part of the Dublin Podcast Festival. And our special guest is going to be the Belfast uh, newsletter's political editor, Sam McBride, whose book Burned, the inside story of the Cash for Ash scandal and Northern Ireland's secretive new elite has been receiving rave reviews. And we're going to be dissecting the inner workings and personalities of one of the world's most unusual political parties, the DUP, while Pat keeps us supplied with craft beers and uh, And tasty bar snacks and the occasional epigram, of course, as well. Now, and Dennis Donson is joining us on the line. So, Dennis, you're very welcome. Very busy time for you. Thank you. It is, it is. It's very busy, yes. Yeah. Um, Good busy. Wanted the, there's, there's a lot to look at, but there are a couple of things I wanted to look at first because you've been writing about them uh, this week. One is a, a process which we've seen in previous general elections, which when it comes to the crunch of the campaign starts, the, the smaller two parties of the four which are contesting in England and Wales uh, start to shrink a bit. The pressure, the downward pressure starts to starts to have an effect on them. Now we saw that, we discussed earlier in the week about uh, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party and so we can kind of see why that's happening. But is that starting to happen with the Lib Dems too? Yes it is. So the Lib Dems would now be on the average of polls, they'd be uh, on around 16%. And a few weeks ago they were up uh, closer to 20% and in some polls above 20%. And so it's actually uh, quite a big drop in terms of the proportion of where they were at. And what does seem to be happening is that people are uh, moving back in both directions. So what you're finding is, say, here in London and in the south of England, a lot of uh, Conservatives who, because of Brexit, were thinking of moving towards the Liberal Democrats now seem to be uh, moving back. And that's partly because uh, they're a bit more comfortable about Boris Johnson's Brexit strategy because they think at least a no-deal Brexit is off the table. But it's also uh, because I think they're starting to realise that uh, Jo Swinson's claims that she could be the next British Prime Minister are implausible and that actually the most likely thing that's going to happen is that uh, if if there isn't a majority for uh, Boris Johnson, that you're going to have a hung parliament and the most likely person to be prime minister then is Jeremy Corbyn. So I think that you're you're seeing in a way what you're seeing there reflected is to some extent the fact that Brexit, although it is the most important issue, uh, if you ask voters generally, it's not the only important issue. 
And it's also, it's not important for, you know, it's not the most important issue for everybody. And it's particularly not the most important issue for Labour voters. So if you ask Labour voters, the most important issue for them is the National Health Service. So there again, some Labour voters who were annoyed about Jeremy Corbyn's ambiguous policy on Brexit are now also uh, retreating from the Liberal Democrats. So you're finding a bit of that. So it is, as you say, it's a kind of classic squeeze on a small party. Dennis, seems to me that... You know, it's it's probably the most unpredictable election that we've uh, we've 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 ever seen, and it's going to rely on, to a large degree, on tactical voting on behalf of supporters of all, of of, of all parties, really. But I suppose particularly those Liberal Democrat uh, supporters. Are you picking up uh, any sense of? Of, of of how the parties are treating that question or how it's playing on the ground? Well, John Curtis put it very well, uh, the polling expert put it very well yesterday when he was saying that uh, the problem with tactical voting is for it to work, you need to hate one party, uh, you know, passionately and be pretty indifferent to two others. Whereas actually, generally speaking, if you hate one party right now, you probably love the uh, love another party. And so the problem is that even when, say, the Liberal Democrats enter into a pact with somebody else and they're not entering into any pacts with Labour, but if they enter into a pact with other small parties. It's not necessarily the case that, say, the Welsh Liberal Democrats will decide they're going to vote for Plaid Cymru, as they would have to under one of these pacts. They may just decide they're staying at home or they're actually going to vote for Labour or the Conservatives or whatever it is they want. So it's actually, generally speaking, quite a small proportion of people who do tend to go for tactical voting. The most successful exercise in tactical voting in recent British history was the 1997 general election, where people just wanted to get rid of the Conservatives. And so there was a successful tactical voting operation between Labour and the uh, Liberal Democrats, which the which voters you know rather intelligently worked out how to operate. So you could see it in some places, but it's also it's not clear. I mean, for example, if you look at some of these tactical voting websites that uh, say the People's Vote campaign or Best for Britain have put out, they sometimes disagree about which candidate you ought to vote for. So, for example, in the constituency where I'm sitting now, cities of London and Westminster, that was uh, held by the Conservatives. And last time, Labour came within maybe 3,000 votes of taking the seat. The Liberal Democrats were a very, very distant third. But the Liberal Democrat here, uh, uh, the candidate here, is Chuka Omuna, one of the most high-profile uh, candidates. And the Liberals are putting out leaflets with their kind of slightly phony bar charts on them saying that uh, they're the best place to take the seat. And some websites say they are, and some of the tactical voting websites say, no, actually, Labour, if it's a, you know, if it's a Remain person that you want, uh, would be a better bet. So that's another problem, I think, with the tactical voting. And when people say things like that at, at constituency level, are they basing that on any actual empirical evidence at all, Dennis? I mean, is there polling happening? Is there anything people can point to in terms of the, the actual numbers? There is some polling, you see, so you can point to some polling and often what, what, what happens in these things is that they distort the polls. There was one particularly notorious case which, uh, was, which Joe Swinson was confronted with on television where they had a poll in Somerset in uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's constituency and it suggested that, uh, you know, that the Liberal Democrat was best placed to defeat Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, whereas in fact the Liberal Democrat had come a very, very distant third last time. And that they had a poll where they said, if you 
you, you know, they, they phrased the question in a particular way. If it was down to just two people and if uh, X had a better chance of vote, of winning, would you vote for Y? And so uh, so I think, you know, so they're, they're using some polling evidence, but it's not very reliable polling evidence. And uh, I've heard a lot of talk over the last week as to whether this election will more resemble the one in 2017 or the one in 2015. And obviously in 2017, you had a, a Labour surge over the course of the campaign and they almost caught up with the Tories and you had the the other two parties, well, one of them did, barely existed at that point, the previous incumbent, UKIP, representing the kind of the more extreme Brexit view. But the Lib Dems as well, not just getting squeezed, getting really badly squeezed. And in fact, the two parties at the last election between them got a higher share of the overall vote than had happened in a in a generation or more. Uh, but but in the, in the previous election in 2015, a really excellently executed conservative strategy saw them take a, a rake of seats from the Lib Dems in the southwest in particular, which are the ones that the Lib Dems, the Tories feared, would take back this time around. But what, what you're saying is that's starting to look a little less likely. Yeah, and that's a, there's a complicating factor in the southwest, which is that although the southwest, you know, so we're talking about sort of Devon, Cornwall, places like that, although that was a, a traditional liberal stronghold long before the liberal Democrats were invented, uh, it's also very Brexity, and so some of the seats that they're trying to take back, uh, you know, may not go back for, go for them because of Brexit, and this really is the big question of the campaign: is this uh, election about Brexit? If the election is primarily about Brexit then it looks pretty straightforward because the Conservatives not only have a 10-point lead over uh, Labour, but they also have uh, you know, are in the process of basically gathering almost the entire Leave vote behind them or a very big part of it behind them. Whereas the Remain vote is divided between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And even though the Liberal Democrats are going down a little bit and, and Labour is going up, nonetheless, uh, that Remain vote is divided. The question, though, is does that endure? And so what you saw last time in 2017, if you remember, Theresa May wanted it to be about Brexit as well, because she was saying that she needed a bigger majority to deliver Brexit. And, uh, and, and what you've seen, say, this week is that almost every day, the uh, the campaign has not been about Brexit. If you think on Monday, it was because Nigel Farage made his announcement about standing down. But after that, it became about things like the NHS, uh, poor performance on Thursday. Today, on Friday, it's about the uh, Labour's proposal for free broadband uh, all over the country. And during the week, it was about flooding. And this flooding in South Yorkshire and in uh, parts of the Midlands, I think, is potentially a very big problem for Boris Johnson. Historically, if you look back at the role of flooding in elections, one of the case studies that you could point to would be the 2002 German election, when a month away from the uh, the election date itself, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, who was Chancellor, was trailing the Conservative candidate Edmund Stoiber. And then there was flooding in southeastern Germany, and it was on a much bigger scale than it is here. But immediately, uh, Gerhard Schroeder took charge of it. He put in a huge resources. It was the biggest uh, military operation by the German army since the Second World War. And they uh, sent, to, I think, 20,000 soldiers down there. And because of the way in which he took charge of that, his uh, ratings went way up. And that actually uh, it probably won him the election because he was able to build on, on the bounce that he got out of that. Now, obviously, you've had other uh, you know, uh, stories with flooding, like, say, Hurricane Katrina, where because he responded too late, George uh, W. Bush never recovered from that in terms of his own polling. He was, obviously wasn't seeking election next time round, but the Republicans 
Republicans did lose next time round, and he had a very bad uh, midterm election after that. And so what you had this week was Boris Johnson responding just a bit too late to the flooding. And when he went up there and spoke to these people, uh, he found himself unable to know what to say. So these people were complaining to him and he kind of would look down and sort of mumble. And uh, and he then, within a couple of days, he did step up the operation. But the people, I think, felt that he was uh, you know, coming too late. And also what you had was in the north of England, people saying, if this happened in Surrey, then you'd have had a, a quicker response. But you don't care about us up here. It was not for us. He's not interested in this community at all. Do you think he understands people in Sainford? No, he doesn't understand anything. He's just come to show his face, love. And the problem is that it rained very heavily last night as well. And there are a hundred and something flood warnings around this area. And the areas where the flood warnings are is like a map of the seats that the Conservatives are looking to take from Labour. <laughs> will, will that damage to Boris Johnson, will that... <clears throat> continued throughout the campaign, uh, do you think? I mean, just going back to the question of whether the election is about Brexit or whether it's not, you know, there's the old American adage that it's not the guy with the answer who wins the election. It's the guy who gets to set the question. Yeah. And it seems to me we are, of course, in the early stages of this campaign now, but the great struggle that is going on uh, in in the UK is not to have the answer, it's to set the question. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's, there's another thing, though. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether, the, whether the, the flooding story will disappear by next week and it will, it will be replaced by something else. But it is true that, that election campaigns reveal politicians to the public. And uh, and so you see them in certain situations. What you saw, for example, last time in 2017 was that Jeremy Corbyn, who started out, out uh, you know, with very low popularity ratings, not quite as bad as they are today, but still they were low. He then was revealed throughout, the, you know, during the course of the campaign to be somebody that people didn't really mind quite as much. Now, they didn't like him by the end of it, but they disliked him less and they found him, you know, they, they found they saw qualities in him that they, that they, that they quite liked. And in the same way, Theresa May, who started with huge popularity when she went into the election, she revealed herself during the campaign to be somebody that people weren't, uh, you know, that they thought, actually, this is not the person I thought I was dealing with. And you see that in campaigns all over the world. But I think you're absolutely right. It is about how do you, you know, what is the question? And obviously what Labour wants to do is to take it away from Brexit all the time. They want to, you know, so as long as it's about the National Health Service, it's about the fact that your broadband doesn't work, it's about the fact that your train is delayed, it's about the fact that uh, you you run out of money before the end of the month, that's good for Labour. And as soon as it gets back onto Brexit, it's bad news. And it's good news for the Liberal Democrats and it's good news for the Conservative Party. So everybody wants to talk about Brexit except the Labour Party. And so far this week, the Labour Party has been really reasonably successful in getting the subject off Brexit. It, it strikes me listening to that, Dennis, that something like the, the broadband plan announced by, by John McDonnell this week, which is, you know, extraordinarily wide-ranging. It's free broadband, free high-speed broadband for every single household in the country, uh, run by the state and owned by the state, which begs various kinds of questions as well. But that, because of what you've described, the bolder the promises they make, the better. Because even if there's a negative reaction to them, as there's bound to be, particularly from the, the Conservative press and various other places, it makes Labour the story rather than Brexit or the Tories or something else the story. 
That's right. And I think that their strategy, and it has been from the beginning, was that they see they wanted to, their message was going to be, we're going to transform uh, society economically. We're going to be the most radically transformative government that you've ever seen. And we're going to be radical on everything except Brexit, where we've got this middle of the road policy. But the middle of the road policy, they hope, will be ambiguous enough to allow people to stay where they are if they're Labour voters or possibly even to move over. And so what they, what they, you're, you're quite right. They want to be to have eye-catching policies, and also the message, say, of something like this, like the broadband policy, is to say. Look, we understand the world as it is. The fact is that broadband is, uh, it's necessary to be online. The internet is a necessary part of life. If you're not on the internet, then you can't do lots of things, including applying for lots of things in, you know, from the public service. And so in a way, they're saying this is a public utility, just like water, like <coughs> rail, and you've got to just, uh, you know, and everybody should have access to it. And of course, they're also saying that it's the way to improve productivity. Isn't it a point that's often missed, uh, though, in in when we're observing over here, I think, is that what we would regard as the kind of more outlandishly left-wing promises by Jeremy Corbyn, you know, to to vastly increase or to, to, to... strongly increase the top rate of tax to national or renationalize the railways to renationalize the water to renationalize the electricity grid and so forth these are all policies that are actually quite popular amongst uh, 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 amongst uh, major- a majority of voters in, uh, in in the UK and if labor can keep the conversation on those sort of things they are preaching to the converted in a way yeah, and it's, and it's also, of course, it's responding to people's experience. A lot of people have a terrible experience on the trains and their trains are late and it really makes an awful difference to their lives. It, you know, it makes them very unhappy. In the same way, energy bills uh, have been going up and, you know, and then just, you know, broadband is, a, is another good example of where people basically, an awful lot of people feel as if their service isn't very good. They'd like to have it improved and they also... But do, do they, sorry like to interrupt, Dennis, but do the, is there any evidence that people believe that the services would improve if they were nationalised? Yes. I mean, certainly if you look at the polling for the nationalisation of the railways, it's, you know, I can't remember what the figure is, but certainly it's been consistently in favour of that. So obviously, if people think you should nationalise, it's because they think that the service would be better. Because they, they basically, because I think the problem is that, uh, you know, uh, to some extent, it is part of the legacy of uh, the economic crisis of 2008, which is that people don't necessarily trust the profit motive as being the best way to ensure better service. And so if you remember, you know, really from Mrs. Thatcher onwards, uh, the, the whole idea was that more competition was going to improve services. Whereas actually what, uh, you know, what uh, many people's experience has been is actually that it reduces the quality of the service. Which really should be an advantage for Labour if that's the, you know, if that's the, if that's the popular view. Yeah, so that is an advantage to Labour. Now, having said all of that, I don't want to get carried away in terms of the of Labour's prospects. I and mean, John Curtis yesterday was saying that uh, the pros- the possibility or the pro- the likelihood of um, uh, of a la- of Labour forming a majority government is as close to zero as possible because they can't gain any seats in Scotland. And so it's it, it is true that uh, you know the only party that has any chance of uh, you know re- that looks as if it has any realistic chance of getting a majority is the Conservative Party. Um, yeah, I heard that interview with John uh, John Curtis, possibly the same one that Dennis is referring to, and he was talking about the choice so far, at least in this election, being uh, very much between a Tory 
majority are another hung parliament. But I know that in 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 the Times, Danny Finkelstein has made the point a couple of times that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have to win to become prime minister. He just has to stop Boris Johnson from winning. Exactly. So Boris Johnson has only one route to uh, to number 10, and that is uh, a conservative majority because nobody wants to go into government with him. And even the DUP obviously are estranged from him because of the uh, the Brexit policy. And so Jeremy Corbyn has other options. Now, it's not straightforward for him either because the Liberal Democrats say they'll never put him in there. Nicola Sturgeon says, yeah, that she might as long as she gets an early uh, Scottish independence referendum. And so, uh, so it's not uh, straightforward at all. But certainly he does have more options. Jeremy Corbyn does have more options. But even if you look at, I mean, if you, you know, to get him kind of at the races at all, he'd still have to gain say, uh, 20 or 30 seats, probably 30 or 40 seats even, uh, from from Labour's position right now. And at the moment, it looks like Labour is defending and Labour is way behind. But it, you know, but but the, I suppose the point of what we were saying earlier is that the campaign can change things and that campaigns can uh, refuse to be about what governments want to make them about. I suppose normally in a situation like this, the Conservative strategy would be to point to the, you know, the insanity, the mad spending being proposed proposed by, by their opponents and putting them, themselves forward as, you know, as the, the, the sensible alternative. But is there a point at which they need to go more down the Ed Miliband 2015 strategy and, you know, all those pictures of the Labour leader in the, in the pocket of the SNP, given that, as you say, there's virtually no chance at all of a Labour majority? Is the appalling vista, which they should be holding out to the electorate, not of further chaos and, uh, you know, a, a frozen parliament and all those kind of things, which Boris Johnson goes on about quite a lot? Yes, and that actually is what they're doing. And Boris Johnson has been going on about that for the last uh, couple of days. So what they're saying is, look, this is the, the clear choice is a conservative government that will get Brexit done or this mad coalition of chaos. They don't use those words anymore uh, with, um, you know, uh, this, as, as Johnson was putting it, this uh, Sturgeon-Corbyn alliance that will have two referendums next year and, you know, wreck the economy, all of that stuff. They have a problem, obviously, in terms of complaining about labour labor borrowing and spending because they're planning to do that themselves. And also what Boris wants to avoid is that uh, that he should be held responsible for the actions of the Conservative government over the last nine years, which of course was cuts, 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 austerity and all the rest. So he's basically presenting himself as at the head of a new government which is going to reverse all this austerity. So he's on a kind of slightly trickier territory when he's trying to complain about Labour overspending, even though Labour is promising to spend on a much, much greater scale than the Conservatives. I mean, I think the picture that Dennis paints is uh, of a, you know, a reasonably good kind of first week proper of campaigning for Labour, uh, which, you know, I think I think is fair enough. Uh, but one thing that has struck me observing Boris Johnson uh, in, in, in recent days is that his, for somebody who is, you know, gives the impression of being kind of chaotic and random and spontaneous, uh, his message discipline is absolutely rigid. Every time he opens his mouth to talk about the election, he says, get Brexit done, more money for hospitals, more police on the streets. And I think that's very much the kind of Linton-Crosby model of 
uh, of uh, electioneering. Do you find that impressive as a political strategy? That 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 absolute discipline, you know, to the point of almost seeming like an automaton at times. I. I, I do, actually. I think that is the way to reach voters. And it goes back to our earlier observation that most voters are paying only a fraction of the attention to this that, that we're paying to it. And I remember Leo Varadkar saying uh, once, you know, when Fine Gael ran in, in the 2011 election on its five-point five point plan and his experience was when re- regurgitating the points, the five points of the Fine Gael plan would make him feel almost physically ill, that it was only then he noticed the recog- the flicker of recognition in, in voters' eyes. And political strategists the world over will say this, that politicians need to keep their message discipline. They have tested these messages. They believe they will work with key demographics. I think these messages are directed at those swing voters, particularly older voters. And, uh, and, and you know, I think, look, who, know, who the hell knows what's going to happen. But I think if Boris Johnson does come out of this, having achieved a majority, and it was my expectation from when he became prime minister that he would get an election and win a majority, I think if he does, it will be on the basis of this clear and simple messages. But to make those to make the Brexit message, uh, to make that relevant, he has to make the question about Brexit. And just in relation to that, Dennis, we're into the campaign, but the TV debates will start in the not-too-distant future. There were no TV debates in 2017 because Theresa May probably rightly thought it was a bad idea from, from her point of view. We have two flawed political leaders here squaring against each other. Um, how significant are those debates likely to be, do you think? I think they are important. The first one is on Tuesday uh, evening on uh, ITV. And I think that uh, that if the Conservatives uh, were in the position they are now, because despite everything that we were saying, the Conservatives are in a strong position uh, as we head into the kind of the proper campaign now, because they're comfortably ahead. And there's certainly, you know, uh, the, the margin that they're ahead would give them a majority if there was, you know, on most normal kind of calculations at least. And so I think it is a risk for Boris Johnson, because here he is with a nice, comfortable lead. And, you know, uh, there's a danger that uh, Jeremy Corbyn could uh, could actually outperform, because Jeremy Corbyn is actually quite good in these uh, formats often, whereas Boris Johnson can uh, can be all over the place. And the problem with, uh, with, with Boris Johnson's uh, style is that, uh, you know, under uh, sustained scrutiny, it can fall apart. And particularly given that uh, there's not going to be just one of these, there's also going to be uh, at least one more just head to head with with Jeremy Corbyn. But I do think that this is, you know, so I think it's it, it, insofar as it's a risk to anyone is to Boris Johnson and it, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for Corbyn. And then the second opportunity next week uh, will come for him when they, uh, when Labour uh, publishes its manifesto. And that was a, a, a crucial moment in the 2017 campaign when, uh, you know, Labour published these radical policies and people found out they actually quite liked them. But remember, of course, it wasn't enough to win Labour the election. And hopefully we'll return to all those subjects next week. But for the moment, Dennis, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's great, Dennis. Thanks. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.
And that is it for today's podcast. Thanks to Pat and to Dennis and our producer Declan Conlon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me somewhere on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. You know, consulting firms are like onions. Layer after layer after layer after layer. You just don't get the answer or the person you need. You just get irritation. Ready for an approach with less bureaucracy? Welcome to Grant Thornton Audit Tax and Advisory. It's not status quo, it's status go. 